Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I grew up playing sports. Baseball, bowling, volleyball, football, floor hockey, dodgeball, track, basketball. Loved the battle, the competition, the trash talking, and I hated losing. Days were lost when I lost big games. I played baseball and basketball the longest growing up in Queens, New York, and Manassas, Virginia. I dreamed of playing in the NBA, duking it out with the next Michael Jordan as the next John Starks. But as high school graduation approached, I knew the dream would remain a dream. When I arrived at college in the fall of 2000, I settled on a backup plan, sports journalism. I never imagined writing about racism. I planned on sticking to sports. I'm Ibram X. Kendi, and this is Be Anti-Racist. I worked tirelessly to jumpstart my sports journalism career. I took unpaid internships at notable papers, took after-hours jobs to make ends meet. I became the sports editor at my college newspaper. Shortly after my junior year, I landed my first paid internship at the Mobile Register. The year was 2003, four decades after President Kennedy had ordered the National Guard to desegregate the University of Alabama. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. Now there was a big sports story on campus. The university had considered hiring Sylvester Croom to become the first Black head football coach at the institution and in the entire Southeastern Conference. Croom was born in Tuscaloosa and was one of the first Black football players at Alabama playing for legendary coach Bear Bryant. When Croom played for the Crimson Tide, the University of Alabama's football team They won all but two of their games, won three consecutive conference championships, 
and were the 1973 national champions. He went on to have a career as an assistant coach in the NFL. But the University of Alabama snubbed Kroon in favor of a white coach with significantly less coaching experience. Kroon said at the time, Black guys are good enough to play for them, good enough to be assisting coaches, and not good enough to be in the positions of decision-making and the positions of high financial reward. At the Mobile Register that summer, I wondered what some of the top high school football recruits in the region thought. It was 2003, and the SEC still had never had a blackhead football coach. I was surprised when every single recruit I interviewed said they'd prefer to play for a blackhead football coach. Readers of the Mobile Register were surprised when we reported the news. I served as a vehicle for these black athletes to speak their truth. They didn't just shut up and play. They inspired me as I learned firsthand the interplay of race and sport. When I returned to campus in the fall of 2003, I decided to double major in African-American studies. I came to see how much Black athletes and other athletes of color were treated as commodities, whose points on the scoreboard mattered more than their lives. Policies and decisions concerning the upcoming Tokyo Olympics have offered painful reminders of this fact. The International Olympic Committee barred Shakari Richardson, the fastest woman in the United States, from participating in the 100-meter dash for legally smoking marijuana after learning about the passing of her mother. USA Track and Field recently announced that C.C. Telfer, a Black trans runner, will not be able to participate in the 400-meter hurdle, despite meeting the performance requirements for the event. The policing of Black women's femininity did not end there. Christine Mboma and Beatrice Masilingi Two cisgender sprinters from Namibia have been ruled ineligible to compete in the women's 400 meter due to natural high testosterone levels. The International Swimming Federation banned the use of sole caps designed for black hair on the grounds that the caps did not follow the so-called natural form of the head. At the same time that these racist, misogynistic, and transphobic policies were enforced, the IOC has ruled that athletes could not stage protests against them during events or medal ceremonies. Thinking back on it now, I got into writing by writing about sports, but it was sports that pushed me into writing about racism. And the rest is history. Welcome to Be Anti-Racist, an action podcast where we discuss how to diagnose, dismantle, and abolish racism, how to save humanity from the divisiveness of racist ideas and the destructiveness of racist power and policy, how to free humanity through the unity of anti-racist ideas and the constructiveness of anti-racist power and policy. On Be Anti-Racist, we discuss how to make the impossible possible and how to bring into being what modern humans have never known, a just and equitable world. You ready? Let's roll.
small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. There's a huge bastion of people who believe that sports and politics should mix. But in this case, they've always mixed together. I mean, think about it, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell. We've always had these different intersections between sports, race, politics, and gender. And usually people that object to that intersection because they don't like the viewpoint or opinion being expressed. So it's not really about the fact that they're mixing. They're just mixing in a way that makes them uncomfortable. Similar to how athletes are told to shut up and dribble, many journalists of color are told to shut up and write. There is perhaps no one better versed in this reality than Jamel Hill. Jamel went from being the only Black woman sports columnist in all of North America to co-hosting her own show and anchoring SportsCenter on ESPN. But everything changed in 2017. On Monday, the ESPN host went off on social media, criticizing the president as going as far as calling Trump a white supremacist. Trump went after Jamil, as he did a series of other black women journalists during his presidency. His tweet said the following, with Jamil Hill at the mic, it's no wonder ESPN ratings have tanked. In fact, tanked so badly, it is the talk of the industry. She ultimately left ESPN. Jamel Hill is now the host of a podcast with the illest name, Unbothered. She's also a contributing writer at The Atlantic. We sat down recently to discuss how important it is to overhaul sports, from ownership to fandom to media, if we want to achieve an anti-racist future. Jamel, I'm so glad we were able to get some time to chat. It's a pleasure definitely for me to be here as well. Me and my husband actually are in the process of reading 400 Souls, <laughs> just so you know. I first want to ask you about, I know you wrote about it in The Atlantic, but your reaction to what's been happening with Naomi, you wrote about it being a larger struggle within sport. And so if you could just share with us your thoughts about that. Naomi Osaka, 
you know, it's a really complicated issue. Her mental health, of course, being the first major component of this conversation. For people who maybe don't follow tennis, what she said about the anxiety, depression, I think the scope of it was new. But Naomi has always intimated that she struggles in terms of public speaking, which is always interesting to me because every time she does speak, it's always eloquent, thoughtful, direct. It's everything that you want as a journalist when you cover an athlete of her magnitude. She was very eloquent on this subject, but yet we have to remember she's 23 years old. Her career is like literally just taking off. She's the highest paid female athlete in all the sports. This comes with a lot of pressure, a lot of expectations. And at the same time, as she is coming into her own as a tennis player, she has the double duty of having the unfortunate task of unseating her iconic hero, which is Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. I think back to 2018 when she beat Serena in the U.S. Open for her first major title and the crowd booed her. And she revealed in the last couple of weeks that that was a major source of the depression and anxiety that she's felt. So there's one part of this that's a mental health conversation, and it's our responsibility as sports journalists to put this into context. Then the other part becomes about athletes and their own agency. And given Naomi's financial capabilities, the leverage that she has both socially, culturally, in her sport, I think that saying that she not only would have to face a $15,000 fine, but she also would face maybe being excluded from future majors if she did not adhere to their media policy was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in sports, especially considering this is someone who is a jewel in your sport, who continues to drive popularity and drive eyeballs and viewership and fans, both longstanding fans and new casual fans who just really like her. And you alienate her. If you're an official with the French Open, what's better this week to have Naomi Osaka in the tournament or out of it? I'm going to say in it. So this was just a really bad play on their part. Consider that playing time and money have always been two things that they have used to try to, quote unquote, keep athletes in line, especially black athletes and especially black women. Her withdrawing from that tournament said a lot about who she is as a person and a lot about, for that matter, that she values her peace more than performance. So good for Naomi Osaka. I think as a media member, we do really have to think about our approach. Here are two words that I wish somebody would have told a French open official, pool reporter. I use them all the time in the White House. Could have used one with her. Maybe that would have been a very viable solution. Indeed. And Jamel, one of my first reactions when I heard the response that basically these athletes, as I knew across sports, are more or less required to talk to the media, was why aren't our elected officials <laughs> required <laughs> to talk to the media? Why is it that we have athletes who are required to talk to the media? And people rally around it and say, oh, it's important. It's part of the game. It's part of the sport. But we have elected officials, even during a pandemic, can go months <laughs> without talking to the media. How does that happen? It says a lot about our priorities, right? <laughs> what people have to understand is that there is a, I know this is no shock to you, but there's money involved when it comes to these press conferences. Of course, there is a logistical component to this that is workable for both athlete organization or sport they represent and journalists. The other part is that sometimes if you're watching a press conference, I want people to pay attention to the banner that's usually behind the athlete as they're talking or look at the table. You usually wow. see a company's wow. name, right? You usually oh, see some kind uh -oh. of sponsorship. Uh -oh. 
right, right there. Teach. That space ain't free. I have told that. Okay. So that that company or that business or that sport can get primetime placement because if he gets PNS to run a clip of this press conference, guess what you get to see that is sponsored by Lumberjack. Okay. It's like you see it. Hmm. And then it's growing and expanding the reach of the sport. And the way that you do that is that you make the athletes accessible. Mm-hmm. You get them written about, you get them talked about. For journalists, they're very useful. Mm-hmm. I've spent 20 years now in sports journalism. And so I think what you brought up is a very important point. I think there's some debate or some discussion, at least, about whether or not making them mandatory is perhaps sending the wrong message. But it does say something that we expect our professional athletes to answer to their performances, but we do not expect Ted Cruz to answer why he's off in Cancun while his constituents are literally freezing to death. The government, which we pay with our tax dollars, is able to avoid our scrutiny as well as our questions. And we're unable as a citizenry to hold them accountable other than through journalists. So there's something kind of bizarre about that culture, especially when you consider that other entertainers and sports is entertainment they don't have to make themselves available in the same way. Mm -hmm. How much of that do you think has to do with sport, particularly the major money-making sports being so racialized? So we're really talking about Black men and women oftentimes and requiring or mandating them to do something. Of course, as you know, many journalists and writers who've written at the intersection of race and sport have compared the relationship between the way society understands and looks at Black athletes and the way in which they have looked at other people they want to control and dominate. There's this almost inability to imagine a Naomi Osaka with agency for so many people. Yeah, Black athletes in particular, the majority of their careers are covered by white people, white men Mm -hmm. who are creating narratives about them, who are culturally disconnected from them, who do not understand some of the other racialized issues around sports and can see and report on them through that context. We've had this conversation for my entire career about the utterly embarrassing lack of representation in sports media. Mm -hmm. To give people an idea, even now, 2021, roughly 80% of sports reporters in the U.S. are white men. It's the same when it comes to executive leadership at sports media organizations. It's the same when it comes to columnists. It's the same up and down the line. I was a sports columnist in daily newspapers in 2005. That was my last year as a columnist at a daily newspaper. And at that moment, I was the only Black female sports columnist in North America. The only one out of 405 daily newspapers. That is shameful. Shameful is not even the word. I want to use a cuss word, but I want to impress you, so I won't use it. And so so that's pretty bad. And not a whole lot has changed. Think back to Colin Kaepernick when he began his protest in 2016, and look at how that was covered. Now, the person who originally wrote about why Colin Kaepernick was doing it and what he was doing was a Black reporter who noticed that he was sitting down on the bench. And after that, You saw a media narrative, mostly, again, framed by white reporters and analysts and commentators that was so disconnected to what Colin Kaepernick was actually talking about. You know, I didn't see a whole lot of 
people in sports commentary delving deeper into the issues of police brutality or trying to understand the message that Colin Kaepernick was trying to send. And certainly once the conversation got hijacked and became about patriotism, a lot of people in sports did not resist that false narrative. And as a result, or at least contributing factor, I should say, Colin Kaepernick got cast as a villain pretty early, pretty quickly, and with resounding damnation. This is the danger when you have a media that is as white as sports media still is. When these narratives are formed about Black athletes, they tend to stick. And when it comes to women of color and it comes to Black women, much like it is in the rest of our society, there's an erasure, there's a depiction. I mean, I think about how often and how regularly that Serena Williams throughout her career was depicted as aggressive, confrontational. She has a competitive fire that is on the same level of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and many of the great athletes of our time. But a lot of times she was called rude or impolite or doing something that was offensive to tennis and not to mention the body shaming that Serena went through in her career. So Naomi Osaka is getting a firsthand look at this, firsthand look. And they're shocked that she would feel uneasy and anxious when she's around the same media that is very quick to paint Serena Williams as some kind of monstrous villain. I think this generation of athletes has a new sense of empowerment and a more heightened sense of agency. And that social media has allowed them to directly reach who they want to reach. Mm -hmm. They want to create and craft their own narratives. They're tired of depending on the media to do it and certainly to do it responsibly. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jamel Hill, and you're listening to Be Anti-Racist with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. I'm happy we're talking about this heightened agency, to use that term, of athletes today, because even you've written about just how to think about ways to transform sports. I can remember back to a piece that I read calling for Black athletes to return to HBCUs and being a... uh, an alum of Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University. (laughs) That's right. Use the full government name. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, of course, knowing that in the 1960s, 1950s, many of these top athletes, particularly from the state of Florida, particularly in football, were going to FAMU, just as in Louisiana, they were going to Grambling. But now, of course, they're going to UF and LSU. And as a result, the money is following them or money is being made. If you can talk about potentially high-profile and highly recruited Black athletes returning to HBCUs and what that would do in terms of the changing of sports and even the changing of this country. Well, I think it's important that we start the conversation realizing what they used to think amateur athletics, which is when it started, that's what it actually was. It was amateur, what they thought it was going to be. And nobody thought it was going to become a billion-dollar enterprise not even HBCUs. Yeah. HBCUs, I don't think they not only couldn't anticipate what all college football, college basketball was about to be, they also, to some degree, didn't think that white people would ever come up with the idea of integrating mm. <laughs> because why would they, yeah. right? Why would they ever think that they would considering the treatment that they had already faced? And the whole reason we have HBCUs being because 
white institutions were not allowing black people in them. It was our only resource in terms of higher education. Of course, once you saw black athletes trickling in slowly to these predominantly white institutions, people point to when I believe it was Alabama played USC, Bear Bryant. And I can't remember his name, but I think it was a black running back. It was either running back or a quarterback who just demolished Alabama. And after that moment, Bear Bryant understood if we are to survive as Alabama, we have to have black athletes. And so they aggressively began to shepherd all the black athletes. You know, this is another sidebar conversation I'm sure you've had about the negative aspects of integration. You know, we wanted equality, but I don't think we wanted to be robbed of our greatest resources. And that's what happened. Mm. And those great resources were these incredibly skilled, talented, highly capable college athletes that suddenly stopped going to Grambling and FAMU and Hampton and Howard and began to go to white institutions because they, of course, had more financial resources than HBCUs as they had from the very beginning. They had more to offer. And you look up in 2021 and Black athletes have built an empire that is worth billions mm-hmm. off their free labor. And thinking about how that money has been used to create a level of financial success at these universities that people never thought was possible, I wondered what would happen if some of our best resources being the athletic community that we have began to take their talents to HBCUs Mm -hmm. and what that might look like for these colleges and universities who certainly have been able to stay afloat, some are thriving. But when you think about the fact that the biggest HBCU athletic budget might be about 30 or $40 million. And the fact that Texas's athletic budget is, I don't know, 200 million. Clemson has a $55 million locker room, a locker room. Alabama has a $65 million locker room that comes with a barber shop. Okay. <laughs> this is what is being built because of the success of black athletes. And so thinking about the kind of endowments that HBCUs have and what that looks like compared to a Duke or North Carolina. It's not even close. I mean, Howard probably has the biggest endowment out of HBCUs and it probably wouldn't even be in the top 150 of predominantly white institutions. Yeah, it's not. It's not even a billion. (laughs) No, yeah, I don't think it would. I was taking a wild stab, but I was like, I'm (laughs) guessing it wasn't. And so the sports economy has been major for higher education And it feels like, especially with the political climate in this country, the grievance climate in this country, and how racially polarizing things are, that it definitely feels more so than I've seen probably in my career that more Black high school athletes are considering HBCUs. But there's a lot of us that don't know the HBCU history or are not as well-versed. And I get it. I understand why the players want to go to Texas A&M or University of Texas rather than Prairie View because the facilities are completely different. But I do think that at this time in our community that it's important that they really consider HBCUs, especially when they start to think about how much money that they are willingly making for other schools. So it was just an important issue I wanted to raise. I'm not the first one to think about it, but I thought that laying it out there would be something that people could really critically think about. Critically thinking about it even more, especially when we think of SEC schools 
and ACC schools like Clemson and Florida State and how these universities, private and public, are sitting in states where currently Black people are facing this wave of voter suppression as are people of color more broadly. And you have many of the constituents, voters in those states, electing officials who are supporting those types of policies, just as they themselves are fans of these teams. And so on the one hand, they root for Black people when they run. But then, of course, they're simultaneously running away from the rights of those very people. And this is normal, right? This is, I mean, this is so normal. And and then, I mean, to, to break it down even more, Jamil, mm-hmm. on those very campuses, you have football coaches, basketball coaches who will get fired if they do not recruit the top Black athletes. And right down the road, you have department chairs and deans and provosts who don't have a mandate to recruit the top Black professors can say, oh, they just didn't want to come here. I tried, but the pool (laughs) wasn't diverse. And so I think to me, these just glaring contradictions show themselves most obviously in the Southeast, where we have the greatest populations of Black people, but then also you have the greatest assaults on the lives of Black people, particularly at an electoral level right now. It reminds me of, I don't know who to specifically give credit for, but it's a phrase that I've heard a few times, and especially in the last few years, is if only white people love Black people as much as they love Black culture. Hmm. In this country, we don't produce a whole lot anymore. But the one thing that we still produce is pop culture, is entertainment, right? And I would put sports in that crock pot. And our fixation, our dependency on sports is pretty over the top. And it is constantly both a contradiction, utter hypocrisy, that on one end, you will hear and see many in leadership who constantly undermine the progress of Black people. At the same time, do everything possible to make sure Black production in athletics is unfettered, is untethered, is unbothered, if you will. And a hope of mine is that athletes and sports figures who have the ability to do so will use that dependency to help progress along. I'm thinking of the young man whose name hopefully will come to me, who I believe is at Mississippi State, if I'm not mistaken. Last year he was. And as we're having this conversation in this country, this quote-unquote racial reckoning, so I'm not sure what was actually reckoned, but All right, I'll call it a racial reckoning. But the Mississippi State flag, which stood for over 100 years, had a Confederate emblem. And this particular athlete, who happened to be the leading rusher in the SEC, Mm. tweeted that he wasn't going to represent the state anymore. And I don't know if that meant he was going to leave. I don't know what it meant he was going to do unless they changed that flag. And the governor of Mississippi, who had been playing both sides against the middle, him and Han, not really wanting to change anything, what do you know? Within weeks, it changed. <laughs> and they made a collective decision to redesign a new state flag and also to ban Confederate symbols and also to move forward in what had been a conversation that had been going absolutely nowhere. Now, at the same time, and I don't know how many people are aware of this, but there's a water crisis 
that was going on in Jackson, Mississippi. In Jackson, yeah. yeah, in Jackson, that was on the level of Flint. Yeah. And this same governor, Governor Reeves, pretty much told Jackson, you're in it on your own, mm-hmm. <laughs> All right? Abandoned people about a issue of clean water and was very obstinate, insulting, racist in his response to Jackson. But he didn't want to lose that running back, so he changed that flag. And we have seen this going back to slavery as everything often does. Frederick Douglass even talked about this before, witnessing the role of sport and about how those who were black athletes during slavery, be it in boxing or wrestling or other forms of sport that they would do, entertainment for the white masses, how they made sure to segregate them and treat them differently and to create a level of division in the ranks just based off treatment. Even then, those were those natural hypocrisies of loving to see the brilliance of Black people, but at the same time, never wanting to see the progress of Black people, certainly not on a social or political level. What I like about what's happening now is I don't think today's athletes are in a go-along-to-get-along mood. We saw it in the bubble when they were prepared to stop playing after what happened to Jacob Blake. Mm -hmm. Shout out to the WNBA. (laughs) Yes, and you see the WNBA in one of the greatest acts of political courage in sports. (laughs) They changed the whole complexion of the political landscape when they got Kelly Loeffler up out of Georgia. Oh, yeah. Right? Their boss, who signs paychecks. This is a team owner, right? This is not <laughs> just some executive. This is somebody who is writing their paychecks. And they said, you know what? Reverend Raphael Warnock, that's who we got. And so <laughs> that is what I'm saying is like, I think that there is a level of resilience and just downright progressive stubbornness that has swept through these athletes. They're not having it anymore. They're just not. For those of us who are witnessing the increased amount of activism and resistance from athletes and who were inspired by them, inspired by what those WNBA players did, inspired by Colin. And they're interested in supporting the efforts to end the exploitation of Black athletes in college sports who are interested in figuring out ways to prevent certain members of the media from demeaning or creating racist narratives you know, people who want to do something and want to play a part, where can they begin? What should they be thinking? Well, I do think that sports fans have to demand more. It can't always be on the athletes. Mm -hmm. I think a great mistake that was made with Colin Kaepernick is that the other players didn't rally to support him, not soon enough. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you agreed with his method or if you have some issues, okay, that's fine. But the general idea that your career could be ruined, that you could be blackballed because you were taking a stance for humanity is something that should not have sat right with any player in the NFL. I think they missed the opportunity there. And I also think for a lot of fans who supported Colin Kaepernick, there was an opportunity there for them. You vote with your remote. Mm -hmm. You know, I love football, college and pro. You know, I love sports as a whole, but In some cases, we got to ask ourselves to what extent, because the owners and those gatekeepers in these sports are going to use your love of something, something you think you can't live without against you. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that the fans and viewers can be very key in holding these leagues accountable. The challenge also is definitely on the media, because what happens 
especially now that we have a shrinking media landscape. You have networks that are in business arrangements with all the professional sports. The ability to hold these leagues accountable is often non-existent. And as long as they're kind of able to get away with all of this, they're going to do it. I mean, college sports is a really, really good example in that years from now, when this house of cards has fallen, if older people have displayed, even younger people, yeah, we used to have a college system where the athlete made billions of dollars and never got paid. They don't look at us like we're crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's incumbent on us to keep critically asking these questions and not creating systems where they're able to outright exploit people. The NFL, when you look at how far things have come, and they are not perfect by any stretch when it comes to head injuries and other advancements that have been made in protecting their health. And even on the money end, though they still need to have fully guaranteed contracts for everybody, that sport has come a long way. And part of the reason it came a long way is because I think both the players and the fans begin to hold the league accountable. So I think those partnerships work. I want to see fans side more with players because I don't think fans really understand that this is symbolic of the working relationship in this country. Like we're a country that has been able to make a lot of employment advancements because of unions. You don't side with the people who own Microsoft, you side with the workers. Part of that racial dynamic that you've talked about is that unfortunately, because the most dominant in terms of popularity sports in America are dominated by black athletes, that mainstream fans are very quick to side with the billionaires over the players, not understanding that they have far more in common with them than they do some billionaire writing a check from the sky. So sports fans have to get out of this mindset of being so pro-owner and pro-sports socialism, as I like to call it, mm-hmm. you know, being upset that a player is making $100 million, but you're not upset that an owner is getting you to pay for a $10 billion stadium. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. <laughs> like, So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a level of accountability there that sometimes is missing, and that's what I think fans and players can bring to the table, you know, making sure that these systems are not allowed to go unchecked. Jamel, I'm sure you've seen more and more athletes who express interest in being owners or who actually are becoming owners. And this makes me think about, and correct me if I'm wrong, the last time, I believe it was the NBA, was in a lockout. Some of the players, like I think Kevin Durant and others, began organizing games in high school gyms or college gyms. And then there became talk of the players almost creating and running their own league. And then there was all this blowback in which people were like, oh, the players can't run their own league. Or there were all these demeaning words about the players. I mean, I know you mentioned about the house of cards falling in terms of college sports, but when it comes to professional sports, do you think that that could potentially be the future? And do you think that could be an anti-racist future? It would be a great anti-racist future, but... That's difficult. That's a difficult subject to tackle because I do think it's so deeply entrenched the way the system works now that it would be hard to convince the players to do it, even though they could. You know, overall in sports, there is not the realization that you would think among players, them understanding you are the product. You have all the say-so. 
we're seeing signs of that increasing awareness, but it's still increasing awareness within a system that was only designed to exploit them. Yeah, that's true. The NBA is a great example because I think especially with what LeBron James has come to mean just as a total humanitarian, it has changed all the power dynamics in that sport. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's probably a lot of NBA owners who don't appreciate it, but I think the players have just become so much more savvy. You know, they went back to work on the promise that NBA owners would open their arenas as voting centers. Mm. Okay. That's why they went back after Jacob Blake. That was a big component. And as you see, it was very important that they did that. But I think they can get even bolder, even more aggressive, not just demanding things, but creating things. I do think ownership is the next path for the modern player and it being all about ownership, not just ownership of a team, but ownership of their talent, ownership of their stories. Mm -hmm. They're trying to own every aspect of who they are because they're coming to realize that they themselves are the Fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to make sure that they treat themselves as such. But I think the way that things are, it would just be hard to imagine. It's certainly not impossible, but as always, you're going to need a courageous soul or souls in this case, to really try to make something like that happen. I mean, just because it hasn't happened or maybe we can't imagine it doesn't mean that it won't. But I think we are definitely getting to a point where at least the possibility of that will become stronger as athletes continue to develop their own agency. It's so much more about their ability that they're able to control and, and draw revenue from than there was before that they have single-handedly been able to put themselves in positions to be empires unto themselves. So collectively, I like to see what they do with it because they may get to that point where they say, you know what, we don't really need the NBA anymore. You know, maybe we do our own thing. Yeah, I suspect you'd agree that one of the ways in which these new entities could become successful is if we as fans, those of us who are viewing as you said, you vote with your remote <laughs> and we support that. And we support players functioning as owners, workers functioning as owners, just as we hopefully would support it in society in general. Thank you so much, Jamel. It's always an honor and pleasure to talk to you and learn from you and to even dream as, as we were towards the end of this podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here and having this conversation with you. I always feel smarter when I talk to you just because by listening to you. So I, I really do appreciate not just this podcast and this conversation, but just like all the amazing, thoughtful work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Speaking with Jamel Hill really helped clarify for me that every sports beat is a race beat in a way. Just take this one story that broke around the time Jamel and I spoke. The National Football League has agreed to end a practice, so-called race norming, in connection with a landmark concussion settlement. Some former players say that the controversial race norming practice assumed that black players start out with lower cognitive functioning. And that was used to deny the black players equal money in the brain injury claims, the $1 billion brain injury lawsuit for repetitive concussive injuries. Black professional athletes are viewed too often by ownership, the media, and fans as what journalist William Roden calls $40 million slaves. 
When athletes of color reclaim their narrative, like Naomi Osaka, or enter ownership positions like LeBron James, they are treated almost as runaways from a system designed to exploit them. Racism in sports is a microcosm of racism in the world, and anti-racist solutions applied in sports can provide a model for anti-racist solutions in society. Jamel and I talked a lot about power. Who is in the owner's box? Who is making the rules in teams? Who is in the press box? Who is shaping the stories and narratives? Change won't come unless the power structure in society, in sports, shifts. At its core, the racial struggle is a power struggle between people being racist and people being anti-racist. Let us be anti-racist. Be Anti-Racist is a production of Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. It is written and hosted by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and produced by Alexandra Garretton with associate producer Brittany Brown. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, our editor is Julia Barton, and our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lita Molad and Mia Lobel. Many thanks to Tammy Wynn and Dr. Heather Sanford at the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University for all of their help. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find Dr. Kendi on Twitter at DRIbram and on Instagram at IbramXK. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at Pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.